Well then, with a view to the help and guidance of God, let's uh, turn to the passage we were reading in the Gospel according to Luke, the second part of the passage. Luke 22, and uh, we read in verse 41 that the Lord was withdrawn from them, and that's from uh, Peter, James, and John. He separated himself from them about a stone's throw, 60 or 70 yards, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, that prayer, God willing itself, we will consider tomorrow as we come to the Lord's table. But I just wish to focus on the single expression in the prayer for now, and that is the expression, this cup. He asks, of course, for it to be removed, but what he wants to be removed is this cup. Moments before, he had drunk a cup very willingly and gladly, but as for this cup, he wishes it to be removed. Now, you remember from last night that the main purpose of Christ in coming to Gethsemane this time is to present himself formally to God, to present himself as the sacrificial Passover lamb. You'll remember from last night that he had already, just moments before, presented himself as the great high priest to offer the offering, and he presents himself in that high priestly prayer where You'll remember, he says, that I sanctify myself. I set myself apart now for this holy offering as the great high priest. And, of course, a high priest that was acceptable to God. But now in Gethsemane, he comes to present himself as the offering itself, the sacrificial lamb. And you'll remember from last night, too, and this is critical, that for this presentation... To be acceptable to God, it must be willing. He must give himself out of his own free will. And you'll remember that that willingness required that he himself have a full understanding of what the sacrifice actually involved. And there were two parts to that. First of all, it involved actually identifying with our sins or bearing our sins having our sins imputed to so that just as we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ he is clothed with our filthy garments he wears them and he must give account for them so the first part of the sacrifice is to agree to bear our sins to agree to the imputation and the second part which follows from that is to bear the punishment for our sins. Bear our sins and therefore bear our punishment. And of course, as we saw last night in Gethsemane, he has to face that question, therefore, 
uh, which the Father is essentially addressing to him, and that is, are you willing to be the sin-bearer for your people? Are you willing for all the sins of all your people in all their evil and heinousness to be placed upon you and for you to be accountable for them? Now, of course, as you know, you can't possibly consider or answer that question properly unless you are fully aware of what that punishment involves. How can you acquiesce to bear sin unless you know the consequences of that? And that's why before the sins are imputed, God shows him the punishment. And that's what takes us to the cup, which of course dominates this passage. This cup. Now the concept of a cup is one that appears quite often in the scriptures. And of course you're aware that a cup is for drinking. It's for filling with liquid in order to drink. And it's used as a common expression for something that we have to drink. In other words, something that we have to internalize, something that we have to experience. And I suppose we think of a cup in life generally, our own cup, we can think of it in general terms and in particular terms. We can think of it in a general sense because a cup can describe our whole life experience. In other words, the Lord in your life gives you a cup to drink. In my life he gives me a cup to drink. And uh, that cup contains many different experiences. Um, sweet things, bitter, bitter things, days of adversity, days of prosperity. And uh, all these things are in the cup and we all have to drink our own cup. I mean, I'll come to that, God willing, on Monday evening, if we're spared and by the grace of God. But um, James and John famously asked the Lord if they could sit one on his right hand and one on his left in his glory. And Christ said to them, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of? And uh, unthinkingly, of course, lovingly, but unthinkingly, they said, yes, we are able how little they really understood uh, what they were agreeing to do. Although, interestingly, the Lord says to them, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. Quite an amazing answer. In other words, we will have a portion of grief and bitterness and difficulty too. And that cup of mixture is assigned to us by God himself. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's called a cup. Because a cup is measured out for you and it is given for you to drink. So your life cup has been given to you by God with sweetness, bitterness, adversity and prosperity. And he has his own reasons for everything in our cup. And of course when you're a child of God you know <coughs> that that cup is ultimately a cup of blessing. Even if it has bitter things in you it's, that there is not a drop of curse in the cup that you're drinking. As a Christian today, 
since you came to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is not a drop of curse in the cup that you are drinking. It's a cup of blessing, even if it may sometimes be bitter to the taste. So the cup is just the life experience that we have. And of course, if you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it follows too that there is no covenantal blessing in it in that respect either. You are still under condemnation. So it's a whole life experience. But we also use the term cup for special experiences inside life's experience. If you like a cup within a cup. For example, the Bible speaks sometimes of God pouring out on special occasions a cup of wrath and a cup of fury. <clears throat> the psalmist said when uh, the church of God was going through a difficult experience, he said that you have given us to drink wine of astonishment. <clears throat> the Lord can give you a cup of astonishment to drink. And there have been times when we've drunk that. There's also a cup of wrath and fury that he gives people to drink. After God had chastised his church, uh, Isaiah tells us that God was now going to take the cup of his wrath out of the hands of his people and he was going to give it to his enemies. Cups within cups. At the gospel table, uh, we receive a special cup from the Lord, a special portion. What shall I render to the Lord for all his gifts to me? I'll of salvation take the cup. On God's name will I call. And he fills that cup of salvation, of course, for us from time to time. And in the wonderful Psalm 23 that we know so well and sing so often, we see ourselves at the table of God. He is the host. And we are the welcome guests. And we know we are the welcome guests because he anoints our heads with fragrant oil and he fills our cup to overflowing. That's a special cup for a special occasion. So the whole of life experience is a cup, but particular experiences are also cups. And it's in that sense, of course, that the Lord speaks of this cup that the Father has given him. This cup. And of course, for him, it is a cup of wrath. It's the particular experience that he is now called to go through, at least if he acquiesces, to be the sin bearer. And of course, this cup has been filled by God in his righteousness and holiness and it is being given to by God. <coughs> that himself is a solemn thought. And it consists of the punishment that is due for your sins and for mine. <coughs> and he's got to resolve to drink it. Now you say, well, he's always known that, has he not? Well, yes, indeed, he has known that. He's known that he must drink it. Of course he has. He's known that since he was a, a child, since he was reading the scriptures. 
And even as he said to James and John, I have a cup to drink. Are you able to drink it? I have a baptism, he says, to be baptized with. That's the baptism of his sufferings. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Are you able to drink of the cup which I must drink? Of course he knows that. And in fact, when they come to arrest him, you'll notice there that Peter, of course, takes out a sword to defend him. Peter is full of love, full of love, and he's full of zeal for his Lord. But he has little knowledge, really, of how he could defend himself and defend his Lord. He had not been in prayer when he should have been in prayer, but he took out the Lord, the sword to strike, and Christ told him to put the sword back in its sheath. Those who live by the sword will die by it. Permit even this, he says. This seems horrific to you, Peter, what is happening here and what you suspect is beginning to unfold. You think with your sword you can stop it, let it be and leave it. Because, he says, the cup which my father has given, shall I not drink it? He's just referred there to the cup that he's just agreed to take. And of course he can make the statement there that the cup which my heavenly father has given me shall I not drink it. As though it's unthinkable that he shouldn't. Whereas the fact of the matter is that just a few minutes before that he had been wrestling with the idea of taking it. If it is possible, and I'll come to this tomorrow by God's grace, but if it is possible, remove it from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So God shows him the cup. And by showing him the cup, what I mean there is that it is now powerfully impressed upon his spirit for the first time. If the, if the contents of that cup were always powerfully impressed upon the spirit, he would have been living in the bloody sweat all his life long. How would that be possible? There are things that the Lord keeps for their appropriate time and appropriate season. It's one thing for him to know that such a thing was coming. It's another thing for him to taste it or to see it. There are different ways in which we know things. We can know some things notionally or intellectually. We can know them experimentally. We can know God notionally or intellectually, or we can know him experimentally. And sometimes even when we do know him experimentally, there are different degrees of that knowledge. And here what we have is a kind of veil drawn aside, and he is introduced to what the cup actually contains. By these different kinds of knowledge, I'm thinking, for example, of somebody like Job, when, um, well, you know, the wrestlings Job had. In his own, he was given a cup, and we could call it a cup of astonishment that Job was given to drink. It was absolutely a cup of astonishment. It was a cup of affliction and suffering too. And uh, he calls upon God, and of course he, he argues with God, and he wrestles with God because of the paradoxical nature of his own situation. Everyone in the world is concluding that he's a, a reprobate and an imposter. But then, of course, at the close of the book, God himself appears. And Job is suddenly struck down, and he, 
He puts his hand on his mouth. He says, Behold, he says, I am vile. But what he says is, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now with my eyes see thee. Sometimes we hear of God by the hearing of the ear. At other times our eyes see him. And these are very different forms of knowledge. Very, very different. If you think tonight, perhaps yourself, let's let's think of a cup that is similar to the one that the Lord drank. Let's, Let's think, solemn as it is, to think of the cup that the wicked are drinking tonight, today. Think of that. Think of the cup that they are drinking in hell, which they will never drain. We know that that is a fact. We can contemplate it sometimes. But imagine if you were transported there to the antechamber of hell itself. Imagine for a moment if the Spirit of the Lord came upon you and you suddenly saw yourself there seeing the multitude of those who are forever there without God, without hope and without God what an impression it would make upon you not just to be hearing these things anymore struggling sometimes by faith to lay hold of them or to believe them but you saw it with your own eyes even in a vision well that's analogous to what we have here It's not that the Lord never knew what was in the cup, but now the Lord is seeing the cup. It's held up before him and becomes very real to his soul. And of course this happens in prayer. It happens in prayer. Now to say that this cup is a punishment um, only labels the cup. It doesn't tell us really what the contents actually are. And what are these contents? What is it that the Lord has to drink? Well, yes, it is God's wrath. But but what form does that even take? Well, there are several strands to it, and I'm not going to pretend for a moment to get to the bottom of these things. Who can? But there's a way in which you could say that essentially the cup that the Lord is given consists in every experience he has between Gethsemane and Calvary, inclusive of Calvary itself. Not inclusive of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Gethsemane itself is not the cup. It is the vision of the cup. But the cup begins from the moment he gives his ascent and rises off his knees And immediately he sees his betrayer in front of his face. And from every step, uh, from Gethsemane onwards, you'll notice that Christ is passive. Hitherto he was active, active in his obedience, but now he is passive. Now some people get maybe a little confused about the term passive. They say, well, does that mean that the, that the Lord has no input or no involvement or no will in what's taking place? Well, of course it doesn't mean that. The Lord has put himself into the hands of these people. But the point is that he has put them into their hands. 
to do with him as his father sees fit. He will offer no resistance because that's not part of the cup. He must give his cheek to those who pluck the beard and he must give his back to those who strike it. He must accept being buffeted and beaten. He must accept being lashed. He must accept being spat upon. He must accept being mocked. He must accept being crucified. You'll notice that up to Gethsemane, and this ties in with what I was saying last night, up to Gethsemane, he's in the hands of God. From Gethsemane onwards, he's in the hands of men. Now, you can't cloud that issue by saying, but God is still sovereign. Of course God is still sovereign. We know that. But it is his portion now to be put into the hands of men, in the hands of wicked sinners, for them to do with him as they see fit and as God has permitted and appointed for him. That is what he must agree to. That is what he must acquiesce in. And the fact of the matter is that all these experiences from the moment that he gives his assent are just a series of judgments from one degree to another until he comes to the bitter dregs of the cup that God gives. The first sip, you could say, comes immediately um, after the prayer is over, after the imputation is made in verse 47, while he was still speaking. It's that quick. The hands are laid on the sacrifice. Let him now be slain and put on the altar. While he was still speaking, behold a multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve. This was the man who accompanied him in Psalm 40, 41. Uh, to the house of God. This was the man who had the bag, the treasure. This was the one who was at his side at the Lord's table. He came near and he came near to kiss him. He arrives that night to betray him. And that in itself is a sore thing. The second sip of the cup is the desertion of everyone else because Three of the Gospel writers tell us that they all forsook him and fled. These things are far more painful than any of us realise. I suppose sometimes we're led into situations where we're let down by people for various reasons or whatever. And these things are extremely sore. Now the Lord was close to these disciples. He was bound to them. And nobody knows really how much the Lord loved his own disciples. Nobody knows that. Sometimes we are quite overwhelmed with an intensity of love for some of the Lord's people. That doesn't come anywhere close to the intensity of the love with which Christ loves you and loves me. The love he had for Peter, the love he had for James, and the love he had for John. And he told them that evening that they would all forsake him and flee. And of course they wouldn't accept it, and particularly Peter wouldn't accept it. But from the moment Peter put his sword back in his sheath, he disappeared into the night. And so did the rest of them. As Zechariah had said 500 years before, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I know that Peter tried to recover his strength 
and he tried to follow him later at a distance, but none of that changes the fact that they all forsook him and fled. It's to be conscious of the weakness of the love of those whom you love so much. That's so. That's so. That those whom you love so much are not able to love so much in return. But it was for sinners that Christ died. It was for sinners that Christ died. And he is deeply conscious of that even in the hearts of those that he loves the most. And then the other sip of the cup follows with Peter's denial. It's one thing to be betrayed by someone who isn't really your friend after all. It's another thing to be utterly denied by someone who is your friend. And it wasn't a straightforward denial, was it? With oaths and curses, Peter denied that he had ever known this man. How sure a thing that is. You know, to be effectively cancelled out. Um, I don't even know him. Don't even know. Peter, you don't even know him. How could you say such a thing? But that is part of the cup that the Lord had to drink. And again, there's the condemnation at the bar of the church itself. It is the authorities in Christ's own church that condemn him and condemn him to death. They want him hanged and crucified so that there will be a public declaration that he is under God's curse. Oh yes, he is all right, and permit even that to be so. But is that not the wrath of God poured out upon the Saviour? And then, of course, there is the suffering and there's the pains as he's whipped and beaten. There's the insults as the people gather around him, pulling faces, we're told, pulling out their cheeks and putting out their tongue, shouting obscenities as he hangs there, virtually naked, mocked by thieves and robbers and numbered with the transgressors. But you know as well as I do that although all these things are part of the cup of punishment, they're only sips. They're only sips. He knew that the real sufferings, the real cup, is something that he was to drink upon the cross itself, in between the midday sun at noon and 3 p.m. These three awful dark hours, when the sun itself was eclipsed, effectively made your own testimony to the fact that there was something here that was just without parable, absolutely without parable. And that darkening of the land, it's interesting, of course, under the old Testament dispensation when God was delivering his people from, from Egypt he placed Egypt under a thick darkness and the land of Goshen where the people of God dwelt was bathed in light to show that the, that the judgment of God was falling upon Egypt which was a symbol of the world and its principalities and its powers but the land of God was a land of light and here we are in the land flowing with milk and honey just outside Jerusalem itself, and God draws a darkness upon that land. 
No, I think the, the Greek word there, which is translated land, I, I think it should be translated land. Some people wonder if the darkness was upon the face of the actual globe. No, I'm not saying it wasn't. I have no authority to say it wasn't. But it certainly makes more sense to me to believe that the land there is a reference to the Holy Land. That of all parts of the world, it should be dark at that time. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And the fact is that the place that should be so full of the blessing of God was actually the place that was experiencing the curse. They took the Son of God and they crucified him. But that darkness was definitely a symbol of the darkness that suddenly came upon the Lord's soul when the pains of hell took hold on him and he grief and trouble found. Time, of course, well, time's an interesting thing from many perspectives. People are discovering that it's related to gravity in unexpected ways. People speak of time dilation, time taking longer in some places, time being shorter in other places. It's amazing what people discover, and uh, we think we're wonderful when we discover them, not realising the one who went before us and all these things. But one thing we do know about time for certain is that our experience of it dictates how we feel it and how long we think it to be. Uh, five minutes of torment feels like days. Days of bliss feel like moments. You show me two people in two vastly different circumstances for five minutes and they will both have a completely different conception of that time. But we can be sure that those three hours were hell for the Lord. Why? Well, because it was part of the cup that God withdraw all his spiritual comfort and consolation. I've had the difficult experience of seeing some of the Lord's people brought to a place where they pretty much don't seem to have any faith or hope. And you know this, it's not a pleasant sight. I'm sure it's still there, it was flickering very low, but you know it's not a pleasant sight at all. When they have no sense whatsoever of God's comfort and consolation. And it was the Lord's portion to experience that. I looked for one to pity me. One, but comforters found I none. And does that not include the one to whom he's speaking. After all, why else does he say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not as though he's confused about his situation, but it's the absence, the utter absence of any sense of comfort or consolation that is the awful thing. You may say, did he have faith and hope? Well, how could these things have died? But it's one thing to have them. It's another thing to, to derive any comfort from them. I don't know if you've ever yourself, you know, I've sometimes had the experience, sometimes even in preaching the gospel, some people may say, well, you were helped today. And sometimes you can say, oh, yes, I was helped. I was helped. At other, at other times, you're only conscious you are helped simply because it was done. And it was done uh, to the glory of God. 
not because you felt that help. In fact, you felt pretty much the opposite, that you were floundering and struggling in your own strength and in your own energy. But lo and behold, you are helped. It's more like that with the Lord. There is no sense of comfort and consolation. He may know the truth, but it provides no comfort to the soul. And why should that be? Well, because the withdrawal of God is paralleled with the presence of evil. And that changes everything. You know, when the devil is allowed to fill your mind, it's amazing how little room there is for anything else. The devil was given access to the souls of the Lord to an extent that he hadn't been given before. We know that he was able, of course, to come in at other times. In the wilderness, he was able to come near to the Lord and say, use your privilege and just turn that stone into bread. He was actually allowed to take our Lord to the pinnacle of the temple and to suggest to him, to speak to him and say, why don't you cast yourself down and uh, just prove to yourself that God does love you after all. Uh, You believe he loves you, but... In this waste-howling wilderness, it sure doesn't look like it to me. Does it look like it to you? Why don't you just prove that God loves you? On you go and fling yourself from the top of this temple because the Bible tells you that if you do so, he will give his angels charge over you to keep you lest you dash your foot against a stone. How smart the devil is. How well he knows his Bible. He left out four words from that quotation which completely changed the meaning of it but he was fly enough even in doing that. Or he says, why not just forget this foolhardy mission altogether, change your allegiance, come to my side and you can enjoy all the kingdoms of this world. I will give you free reign in them for as long as you wish He's allowed access to the mind of the Lord. That's us all thought. He has access to yours too. Access to mine. I don't think we take that half as seriously as we should. But here he has access like never before. Who can imagine what the devil does and says in the mind of our Lord in these three hours? The blasphemies he puts in the horrid suggestions, the words. I don't mean that any of these were his own. They were not his own. But that doesn't mean they weren't there. I I remember in connection with that, and this is going down something that's... um, Well, obviously it's connected, or, or, or I wouldn't say it, but I suppose it's taking us in a way down another track. But I remember sometime talking once to a minister who, who was on this island, He's no longer with us, but um, I remember him telling me once how when, when he was preaching, these obscenities came into his mind, and there was a compulsion almost to, to urge them and to speak them. He said to me, and we said, I almost felt that I had to put my hand on my mouth to stop myself saying them. Uh, Spurgeon, in fact, records something very, very similar to that, uh, that he was plagued with that. Uh, horrid thoughts and suggestions... And Bunyan asks the question, I can't remember, I think it's in Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He asks the question whether 
you know, you're bothered about things like that sometimes. Are these, is that you? And he says, well, no, he says, it's not you. He says, you, you can tell the thoughts of your own heart because they obviously originate with you. You can tell where they're coming from and how you entertain them and how you use them and how you work with them. But when he says, when these things violently come in, unlooked for, unsought for, and they just intrude themselves into your heart, and they demand that you give attention to them. That, he says, is the devil. That, that is the power of evil. Now, that's what I mean here. There are a million thoughts in our Lord's heart, in our Lord's mind, that are dishonouring. Not one of them is his own. But the devil is allowed to say them. He's allowed to suggest them. And he was never given rain like he was given on this occasion. Yes, the pains of hell took over him, and he grief and trouble found. And his sight of these things, and his awareness of all these things, was heightened in Gethsemane. He just saw what was going to happen. He sees the cup, and his soul is filled with dread and with terror. Now, the reason I read the two readings earlier is because you can't help in a way but contrast this cup that he sees in the garden with the cup that he just had moments before. Isn't it interesting that one is a, called the cup of blessing and this one is a cup of curse. The other one he had just shared with his flock before they forsook him and fled. Oh, he says, with great desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before, he says, I suffer. And we're told that he first of all took the, the ordinary Passover cup and he told them to divide it among themselves. But, but then he took the bread on the table and he did something different with it. And then he took the last cup uh, ordinarily of the Passover which was called the cup of blessing and he transformed that one too. He blessed it indeed. But from now on this cup would be the cup that would speak to them of all the blessings that God would give them through himself. Let this cup be for you forevermore the cup of the new covenant that will be sealed shortly by my blood. And as that cup was drunk of, I mean, what a wonderful and blessed occasion that was. Uh, surrounded with the blessing of God, and receiving the blessing of God from the bread and the wine that he himself had blessed. They could all say, God is of my inheritance and cup, the portion. And how much they were aware of that that night, that, that God himself was their cup. You know, I mentioned earlier on that in the general sense, the whole of life is a cup. Um, in the whole of life that we receive, we can say that God is my cup. It's not an interesting expression in Psalm 16. God is of my inheritance and cup the portion. In other words, what cup does the believer have? God. God is my portion. And the unbeliever's cup, of course, is the cup of curse. But the point here is that just in the space of a few minutes, really, or certainly in the space of a few short hours, he moves from drinking a cup of blessing to contemplating in all its horror a cup of unmitigated curse unmitigated curse we've never drank that but he had to drink it and here 
all he does is contemplate it. And the question, you know, once the Lord shows it to him, the question is, see this cup? See this terror of the Lord? Well then, are you now willing to be the sin bearer and to be imputed with the sins of the people? What effect does that have on him? Well, the interesting thing is when he comes into the garden, who could tell what was going to happen? There's a, something a little different this time because he leaves eight disciples quite near the entrance of the garden. He takes Peter, James and John. I'll go into that a little bit on Monday night, God willing. But there's still no indication of what's going to happen. He's with Peter, James and John, the four of them, praying together. And it's as he prays that this horror of great darkness starts to fall on him. And it starts to fall because the Father, in prayer, presents to him the cup. And suddenly, everything just changes in his experience. Uh, last communion we were together, we ascended the Mount of Transfiguration, you'll remember. You'll remember that it was in the act of prayer that his countenance began to change. And he was glorified there momentarily. Here, in the act of prayer very reversed. His countenance is completely changed. And what he does is he, he comes to Peter, James and John and tells them that he says, I am exceedingly sorrowful and I am troubled, he says, another word that the evangelist uses, and he says, I am deeply distressed. Uh, we get the idea that there are no words to convey what he's beginning to feel. In fact, as I mentioned last night, he says, this is even to the point of dying. I feel like I'm dying. So much so that he tells them that he needs to pray alone. He leaves the three of them there and he goes away a stone's throw. Now it's a full moon on the Passover night. Uh, he can still be seen and he can certainly still be heard. And the amazing thing, of course, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, is that he prayed that night with strong crying and with tears. You would think that would keep them awake. But he had to pray alone. You know, uh, communal prayer is a wonderful thing. Uh, it's a good thing and a blessed thing to come together to pray. And surely those who are genuinely the Lord's know the value in prayer meeting. I always find it a strange thing when the Lord's people don't want to come to a prayer meeting. I think, what on earth can be wrong with you if you don't want to come to a prayer meeting? But there are times when you need to pray alone. Sometimes there's a burden that nobody can really carry, that you just have to take it yourself before God. Well, if ever there was a burden of that kind, it was this kind. Because it was no small matter to acquiesce in what the Father was wanting him to acquiesce in. In fact, Luke tells us that his soul came to be in agony. Agony. So much so that Luke tells us that his sweat started to pour out of him as though it were great drops of blood. Now, maybe it's not easy to know exactly what that means. The normal explanation, well, that some people offer is that it was just simply blood that came from his pores. But you'll notice in the in the language that it's actually a simile 
It's a simile. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. Now, some, some people go to one extreme and they say, well, that means it wasn't really blood at all. But his sweat was like drops of blood. And what they say is, well, really it's just a graphic way of saying that the life is being somehow squeezed out of him. Which no doubt was true. I mean, it's an interesting thing that the name Gethsemane means an olive press. Because, of course, it's on the Mount of Olives. And there was a press there where the olives were crushed and the oil extracted. And it provides a marvellous figure of what was happening in Gethsemane that night. And they say that, that he felt his life was going out of him. As Isaiah puts it, he poured out his soul unto death. That it was pouring out of him. Well, of course, that is true. But to say that that's all that you have here doesn't seem to do justice to the figure. It's a simile, all right, but why say that it's like great drops of blood? Is that a natural way to speak of it? Notice that it's Luke who tells us that. He's the doctor, remember. Luke is the physician, and he's the one who records. There are various medical things, in fact, that Luke records, which the other gospel writers don't record, which is an interesting thing. But he's the one who tells us that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. That tells us that there was blood there all right. Maybe only a little, mingled with the sweat, but enough to give its colour and maybe a measure of consistency to the sweat that poured from the Saviour's body. Now, that's a medical condition. Hematidrosis, it's called. Anything with hema, and it has to do with blood. And it's a well-known medical condition, although it's extremely rare. And it's what happens when the blood vessels, the capillary blood vessels that are connected to the sweat glands, they burst, and blood goes into the sweat. And you can look it up yourself. These things are easy enough to research now just at the touch of a button. You'll see how rare it is and that its only known cause, aside from a particular uh, defect that can occur extremely rarely, its only known cause is extreme distress and fear. Now isn't that interesting? Extreme distress and fear. Oh, friends, how little we grasp of what the Lord suffered before he even suffered. Um, we spoke of the three hours of hell on earth, but, but this was excruciating too. It obviously was. After all, if seeing the cup is this bad, what was it like to drink it? The agony of his soul at the prospect up down. Now, ever since the days of a, a man called Celsus, who was against the church in the, in the days of the early fathers, he used to mock the way Christ died. It's blasphemous to us, it is blasphemous, but he used to mock it. He says, think of the many heroes, he says, who have faced death with courage and, um, well, of course people do. I mean, you find criminals, you, you find murderers. Uh, you find people going to an electric chair, even today, or to a lethal injection, and they're very stoic, and they're unmoved, and they can look death in the face. Celsus actually referred to the great Socrates, the Athenian philosopher, 
he fell foul of the, um, the ruling classes in Athens who actually condemned him to death and they gave him a cup of hemlock to drink. And of course, drinking the hemlock was putting yourself to death. And Celsus compared Socrates and how noble he was taking the cup and putting it to his lips and dying for the cause of philosophy and truth in Athens compared him to the miserable Jesus of Nazareth who's a shriveling wreck contemplating his own death. What fools we become when we're without God. Do you think a cup of hemlock is comparable with the cup that the Lord was looking at? Do you think there's the remotest comparison to be drawn between them? Not a human nature on earth could withstand looking at the cup that the Lord looked at, except his holy human nature. And only the glory of his person just enabled him, with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, to endure what just could not be endured by anybody else. And that's just a fact. He was crucified in weakness, Paul tells us. He was in Gethsemane in weakness. A cup of hemlock. A cup of hell. It's not so. If we were wise, we would all tremble at the contemplation of drinking that. There's nothing here to mock. Very far from it. Something to humble ourselves in the light of it. The wonder is that he endured it at all. There's one more thing I wish to highlight. As well as God's trial here, and it is a trial from God, will you take the sin and therefore the punishment? As well as that, we can't forget the temptation of the devil. Now, I'm well aware that it's not specifically mentioned in the passage, but that shouldn't blind us to the fact that the devil is there, all right. He's always on his heels. He's always on your own as well, but he's absolutely on his heels. Uh, This is the devil who came to the Garden of Eden to tempt the first Adam. Do you think he wasn't in the Garden of Gethsemane to tempt the last Adam? Absolutely he was. He's never missing from duty. Absolutely not. And in these hours he fired all the artillery he possesses in the kingdom of darkness. There's no doubt about that. I'm quite sure in my own mind that no devil was busy doing anything else while the Lord of glory was being crucified. But the devil most certainly drew near to the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm quite sure that his temptations were pretty much the same as they were before. Here you are, the Son of God. If you are still the Son of God, is all this fair? Is all this reasonable? And let me ask you, is it appropriate? Three years ago I asked, if it was appropriate for you to be starving in a wilderness if you're really the Son of God. Let me ask you now, is it appropriate for you even to contemplate doing what you're being asked to do? Is that appropriate? Is it appropriate for you to be considered like an adulterer or a fornicator or a blasphemer or a liar or a cheat? Are you going to be clothed in these garments? 
It is one thing for you in the wilderness to be hungry and thirsty. And are you really going to take this upon yourself? You, are, are you going to contemplate dying for thieves and for drunkards? Are you sure who you think you are? And are you still quite sure that God loves you? Three years ago, I asked you to throw yourself down from the temple to prove it, and you refused to do that because you quoted to me that you will not tempt the Lord your God. Are you still sure that God loves you? If he loved you, would he ask you to go to hell, as it were? Do you think anybody ever entered the pains of hell and came back out? You read about a scapegoat in the wilderness, that he was taken into the wilderness and he was never seen again. Do you expect to come out of the bowels of hell when you go into them? Are you sure you know who you are? Are you sure you know who you are? I stood once, glorious and wonderful. But the Father in heaven eliminated me because he doesn't brook any rivals. He doesn't like rivals. Are you sure that you're not being dealt with as I'm being dealt with? Are you absolutely sure you're who you think you are? Are you sure you can go to hell and come out again? Three years ago, I made you an offer that it would be far wiser for you just to stop this. Stop it. You have far more powers and abilities than to waste them on this kind of nonsense. Just step onto the dark side and a whole world will open out for you. No need for sin-bearing. No need for cross. The offer's still on the table. It's not too late. Change direction. Avoid the cross. Avoid punishment, judgment. And do your own thing. Why shouldn't you? Who on earth should tell the Son of God what he has to do? Do what you want. Like I do. These things may sound like nothing to us. But you know when you're in a crucible. Satan can be pretty persuasive. Can be pretty persuasive. And all that is pressing upon the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the light of that, there's only one thing that the Lord can do, and that is to continue praying. That's it. This horror of darkness fell upon him as he was praying. The cup is shown as he was praying, and the devil himself enters. Oh yeah, have you ever experienced the devil entering while you were in prayer. You know, sometimes you'd think that that sanctuary was so sacred that he wouldn't be allowed into it. Well, when we meet together as a church, it's a sacred sanctuary, but I've seen the devil come into a church. He can also come to you at the throne of grace. But the Lord has, well, he's got the devil's option, but he also has the right option to take him, and that is to take this agony to God and to wrestle through whether he's going to be imputed or not and whether he's going to take the cup or not and that's going to be a far more costly wrestle than any of us could imagine and God willing would look at it uh, tomorrow let's call on his name in prayer <clears throat>
eternal God, we pray to consider this man who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest we become weak ourselves. Uh, We are thankful that in all the weakness of his own human nature, he nonetheless entrusted himself to you at all times. And uh, we are thankful that he didn't do these things for his own sake, for he had no need to wear a human nature, no need ever to suffer or to be clothed with a garment of shame and dishonour. But these things were altogether for our sakes. And when we glory this morning in the robe of righteousness that you have so graciously forgiven us, let us not forget the cost of weaving it together and uh, what it took into our Saviour's life to enable him to gift it to us. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, close singing in Psalm 16. Psalm 16. And uh, this particular song of praise is actually located really in Gethsemane. At the end of the psalm, you'll notice that the Lord, in verse 10, he, well, he's looking forward to his glory to come. He says that his soul will not be left in the grave, and his body won't see corruption. That's one of the reasons uh, we know that Christ is the author of the psalm. Not just the author, but that it's speaking about him. He's speaking about himself. It's his own prayer. Uh, because these words were only true of him, not true of anybody else. And thou wilt show me the path of life, in other words, I'll get out of this, of joys that is full store before thy face, at thy right hand are pleasures evermore. But he opens the psalm by saying, Lord, keep me, or preserve, the, preserve me, for I trust in thee. To God, thus was my speech, thou art my God, and unto thee my goodness doth not reach. Um, there are people who offer different explanations for that. Uh, I think the proper explanation is that the goodness that he has is not reaching Godward. It's actually reaching out towards the saints on the earth. To the saints on the earth, to the excellent, where my delight is all placed. Their sorrows shall be multiplied to other gods that haste. But of their drink offerings of blood I will no offering make. Yea, neither I their very names up in my lips will take. And here as he's confronted with this cup of punishment, he's able to see a better cup. God is of my inheritance and cup the portion. The lot that fallen is to me thou dost maintain alone. And unto me happily the lines and pleasant places fell. Yea, the inheritance I got in beauty doth excel. These verses 1 to 6, let's stand to sing.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.